Hello, this is Caroline J. Miller. Welcome to Brew Theology. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is Ryan. I'm with Dan Janelle. Tonight, we are with Dr. Tad DeLay talking about repetition and unconscious theology in political turmoil. We had Tad at Barrels Beer Company last week, and he talked to our Denver Brew Theology Group. If you want to start a Brew Theology Group in your community, what can you do, Dan? You go to a web- website. What's the website called? BrewTheology.org. Oh, so there's Janelle right there. And then there's other social media handles that we have. And, and Janelle, what? I hear that there's a way to compensate the podcast that Ryan is always uh, a little nervous to talk about. What, what What's so the deal? So we have... Do we accept uh, Bitcoin yet? Or We don't have Bitcoin, but we are on Patreon. So if you just look up Brew Theology, you'll find us there. And there's actually two options on Patreon. One is you can just offer us monthly support, which we would love. We would love to be able to cover the cost of hosting like for once. That would be awesome. And um, But also, if you would like to join us and become a Brew Theology chapter, that's also where we do our monthly memberships. So just look through the options and find what fits for you. And if you'd like to start a Brew Theology chapter, reach out to us. You can send us an email and we'll get, get with you and get you started. That was much better. I, I think because I worked in the church world for so long, I have a hard time asking for money. It's just even saying money. Huh. It's right now. It's, it's out there now. It's money. You never I had to get up on about tithing. Of or course anything? I did. I had to get on stage and talk about tithing and do the offertory prayers. And yeah, it's just weird because my whole life, whether it was a kid sitting and watching them pass the, the plates and then wondering who's going to put in what to then the person up on the stage asking for the money. And Tad is totally going to mess with my, he's thinking about what's going on in my mind right now. Yeah, it seems like you have well, some issues. I have some issues. Right. It's going to yeah. come out later. Yeah. So one well, of the it, things one of the things we are not doing is compulsively <laughs> asking you to support us. We're just saying if you like what we do, if it's helpful in your own journey, if it's giving you insight about your own faith journey and what's going on, just support us. Even a dollar a month is super helpful because that helps cover these expenses that we have. We are not getting any other support for this than you. So if you would like to help us, we would greatly appreciate that. Thank you very much. So uh, tonight we are, like I said, going to talk about unconscious theology. Before we dive into the topic tonight, there was actually another Brew Theology director, Tom, in Jacksonville. He got married this week. So, woohoo! Way to go, Tom! Congratulations. Anyway, we're proud of you, Tom. We'll see you at Wild Goose. Okay, so uh, Tad is the author of "God Is Unconscious: Psychoanalysis and Theology." And also, uh, this book that I am currently reading right now, it's called The Cynic and the Fool, The Unconscious in Theology and Politics. Tad, before we dive into the book, where are you from, man? Uh, Where am I from? Well, I just moved here. Well, I didn't just move here. By the way, I'm very glad to be excited to do this. But um, I moved here about a year, a little over a year ago from Los Angeles, where I was for about six or so years. And before that, I lived my entire life in Little Rock, Arkansas. So I grew up in... Bible Belt world, uh, heavily like conservative, evangelical, the, the whole, every stereotype you, you'd, you'd associate with that, I suppose. So um, yeah, did that growing up. Um, and then after college, moved out to Los Angeles and did my uh, master's in theology at Fuller and then went on to do a doctorate and another master's at Claremont. And so, yeah, just finally finished that whole process uh, late in 2016. And um, yeah, so, uh, and then my wife got a new job with Denver's public schools out here. So we decided to go for it and I've been teaching at schools out here ever since. So that here I am. Yeah. Now he's living in the greatest city in the U S of A. What he really kept out was that he moved here to hang out with us more. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Well, I met this guy a few years ago and it didn't per, like dissuade me, I guess. So yeah. Well, with all those, all right. all those pic- pictures that you have on your phone of Tad, I mean, you guys might as well be brothers. Something like that. Dan's pretty persuasive. <laughs> we look exactly the same. No, I actually, I met, I met a good number of people. I, I felt like I kept meeting a lot of people around here. I was invited to um, a conference out here, like shortly after my first book uh, released um, down at DU. 
Um, so I started making like just a lot of connections, a lot of friends. And so when a time came to kind of decide like what, where's the next place to go, like Denver was a pretty easy choice. So, so it's been good. I like the city a lot. So, yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you'll stay. Yeah. Unless, oh, of I'll probably you stay have, you know, for a while. You, yeah. You have to move professionally, but this, this city is the bomb. I love it. It is. So Ted, you were an evangelical pastor mm-hmm. in the Southern Bible Belt and then you lost your job. Yeah. And this changed everything for you and it marked this new beginning that led to your <laughs> that led to your current work in this intersectional sort of work of psychoanalysis, critical theory, politics, mm-hmm. theology. So can you just kind of unpack that journey for us before we begin the conversation so people know a little bit about your, your background? <clears throat> yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so I grew up, in, I mean, I, I, I probably a bit late in high school and especially early in college, I assumed that I was going to be on the minister route and did internships to that, you know, to that end and worked at some churches for a few years in various different, like, capacities and... Um, yeah, so I worked at like one mega church and it was like, yeah, some good, some bad, like whatever. Um, and then I worked at a few different church plants that were, it proved to be catastrophic and, uh, As you they know, do. yeah, right. So, um, I think I bumped up against some narcissism and some other like kind of crazy issues that I, As that I, find. but I was very young. I, I wasn't uh, equipped to, to kind of deal with that. I was like in the 20 to 22 range in that, in that time frame. So, um, halfway through college, I took a year off and just lived out with some friends and uh, California for a year. And honestly, just probably because like right when I first moved out there, I just didn't know that many people. So partly just from loneliness, I just started reading a lot and, uh, reading actual theology and philosophy for the first time, just kind of, it it destroyed all my conceptual categories. And I'd be kind of at the same time figured out that that was not welcome in this environment. Right. So I have a few stories from, you know, some of my pastors and friends like that I would interact with. And I would say, you know, like, why did nobody, I don't know, for example, like, 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 why, why don't we like, uh, feed the poor or something like why, why don't we why aren't we involved in any sort of social justice work as a church and I remember one of my pastors for example saying stuff like well you know if you have a dollar you can like give it to missions or you can like feed people and when you think about it like logically um, uh, someone starving to death is nowhere near as bad as going to hell so like it makes a lot of sense to just not and I, and I remember thinking like that's incredibly stifling and cold but actually he's right because if there's a hell it's a really big fucking deal right so like I don't know if you have to edit that out. Or whatever. No. Um, wait, if there's a hell, it's a really big deal. So like, you know, in a sense, he's right, actually. Um, you know, that so and I kind of so like I kind of got a lot of conversations kind of along those lines that were kind of holding up a mirror, kind of showing me. Okay, you believe this thing. Uh, here's this guy who feels kind of no moral qualms, uh, kind of taking where you what you believe to its to its rational conclusion. Actually, um, so uh, that kind of that worked on me for a while, like in conjunction with reading, in conjunction with meeting people who come from a very different culture than the Arkansan culture I came from, like in you know out in California and everything. So I moved back. I finished college. I worked at a few churches, like in the time being. Um, and yeah, I mean there was some there was definitely some good stuff that come came out of that time, but I kept running up against, uh, you know, just, I just, I wanted to read and think things and ask questions. And I guess like my same kind of like inquisitive academic geared minds now was, was, uh, it just didn't work in that environment, right? Like that I kind of thought, and I think naively that my job was to like seek the truth and report it however I find it. Um, and that's not your job in, in those roles, right? That's, that was actually really stupid of me to, to assume that that was my role. Um, and so I, uh, I'm trying to think, yeah. So at one point I was, um, on board with this, this new church plant for like a few months. Um, and then, um, and I just, uh, kind of in a very short time, a lot of people came out to me and I was starting to think like, kind of re like think not just like a number of like doctrinal stuff, but just kind of thinking, okay, this whole like anti-gay stance that like I kind of grew up with is just like, I'm not really sure where this is going, but it, it, it's definitely not working for me the same way it used to. Right. Um, so, uh, so I got, uh, terminated a day or two after I told my senior pastor about that. And I wasn't trying to be a martyr. Like I, I did not expect it to actually be a big deal. I thought, that we could just have a conversation about like changing ideas. But again, I was very naive and misinterpreted the role that I was in. Um, so yeah, so I, I lost that position and, um, it was, it was a lot of turmoil. I had some really, really great friends that were super supportive of me in that time, but it was also, it was really painful to watch 
a lot of people who like some of whom had been friends since like middle school for me, like watch them kind of like throw support behind the guy who had gotten rid of me or whatever. So during that time, I just kind of decided, um, like I really like asking questions. I really like research. I really like reading, like, like thinking about this stuff. I would like to write and teach eventually, but I need to actually have some qualifications and kind of learn my material first. So I decided to, to put myself on the trajectory, uh, to graduate work. Um, yeah. And so I, so I applied and got in and kind of bid my time in, in Little Rock until that happened. And then like during that time, the, the pastor who had fired me, like, got arrested for, for having, uh, for sex with an underage boy. So, um, so he went to prison and got out and back again. And it was, it was a whole big mess, but actually that was, so I had done my, my, um, uh, undergrad degree in psychology, but I wasn't really interested in psychoanalysis at the time until I got to seminary. And it was actually, my kind of foundational lesson in psychoanalytic theory was like reading some books. Yes. But, uh, getting this view of like watching people who I knew and loved, like throw their support behind someone who had like tried to target me. And then like, after he was arrested, still throw their support, like God can bring him back. This is a temporary moral failing. I think that maybe a lot of people probably listening have had the sense that like, um, I, I I know this is, this is going to sound a little hyperbolic. Um, but I think there's an element in, I don't know if it's Southern religion or just like evangelical culture in general that can kind of see, criminally abusive behavior is not as big a deal as progressive thought, right? Because like the latter is like intentional rebellion against God, whereas the former, however grotesque it is, it's like a temporary moral failing, you know, quote unquote. Um, so, so that was kind of like a, that was kind of my introductory lesson in like, cause these people aren't bad people that were like, you know, that it is like former church, right? Like they weren't bad people. It was just, they were kind of, they were caught in the, the cunning of a, of a charlatan. Uh, and that's, that's just, kind of like the way that that world teaches you to kind of repress, disavow what you know, um, ostracize those who need to be excluded from the community. Um, and so that was kind of my introductory lesson. And it was kind of like, it was actually very helpful to kind of think through, um, like, you know, psychoanalysis splits us into, okay, I have my conscious justifications for why I live the, my life the way I do. But then I have this like unconscious, like the, the way that I actually live, the way that I repeat patterns that don't work. Right. And the conscious justification is always kind of a retroactive interjected cover for what my actual desires are. Right. So, um, so reading that theologically is every bit as interesting to me as reading that for how like a person operates with like addictive or masochistic or sadistic purposes. It's the same with like a culture, like how do we, you know, like seem to repeat patterns and, and, you know, like re-engage the same tropes, but then we come up with conscious covers for why we do the things that we do and like pretend we're, um, you know, doing whatever. So I don't know, there's a million different examples we could go with that, but, um, I don't know. I've been talking for a minute here. I just realized, is there, is there, yeah. Is there somewhere else we should go with that or, you know, yeah, yeah. I think it'd be helpful too, just for those who are listening and even those who are at the pub who are listening again, it might be helpful too, also for the listeners and those who were at the pub last week to just define some simple terms, oh, yeah, things sure. that even from, you know, your undergrad days that we, we all take for granted. So even like psychoanalysis, uh, that word alone. Uh, if I know it, it's a it's a huge study. So how how would you define that for those who are like, what is he even talking about right now? So I would uh, psychoanalysis is one of multiple different streams of. Um, I, I guess it would be fair to call it a type of psychotherapy, or at least um, adjacent to psychotherapy, right? So um, it's it's a way of looking at the way that we articulate language, experiences, uh, also dreams, slips of the tongue, various things that our mind seems to um, spell. Various. Um, let me uh, think. It's a way to kind of think through the connections that our mind makes that we don't quite realize that our mind is making, right? So if I say one thing, but I meant another, then, um, you know, even from a biological standpoint, there's a connection between synapses going on that I might not be consciously aware of. Right. But I, but I can learn from that mistaken, like if I say, 
you know, uh, well, the classic, you know, uh, creepy example is like if I if I say mother, but I met my wife, right? Like, um, you, you, like that. That's sort of the, the classic creepy example, right? But like that that would mean that there's like there's some sort of connection that my my brain is drawing there, and then it's kind of like, uh, like what's going on there, right? So, and we do that all the time, right? Like you 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 say, um, you know, you might want to say that, like you, um, I don't know, like I'm fine with this person, but then you say something uh, akin to like that person's a jackass or something. You say something very different than you meant to say, right? Um, and when you catch yourself in that slip and then you retreat immediately say, I didn't mean to say that, right? Like that's the conscious justification, right? For like what you unconsciously are, are acting or like sort of making those connections, right? So psychoanalysis is, is looking at those. So um, I don't know, like for another example with the dream work, so like some strands of psychoanalysis, like Jungian um, sort of think that dreams actually mean like things literally that can be read, like like if you dream of water, it means the same thing if he dreams of water or something like that, right? Um, it's not so much the case in like the Freudian and Lacanian streams that I'm interested in, but um, put it this way, um, when I've been super stressed about things, I can dream about them every day for like a week and then something happens to like, I don't know, I don't get the position or I get turned down for something I was expecting and then my mind stop streaming about it. What, what's like completely right. And I might not dream about that thing for another year or something. Um, to me that might suggest, uh, okay, my mind has a very particular way of controlling narratives of like putting a lot of investment into one thing until it becomes impossible and then moving on to the next thing, which will also become impossible at some point. Right. Um, so, so there's things like that, that psychoanalysis looks at. Um, and I guess the most important concept is the split between conscious and unconscious, right? So maybe I should just Kind of say that so the unconscious is not a thing so we're not talking about a region of the brain there is no unconscious cortex uh, there is no conscious cortex right consciousness happens in certain parts of the brain but when psychoanalysis talks about an unconscious it's talking about a dynamic principle it's talking about reading patterns, uh, reading connections that we make between various symbols, uh, between various experiences. It's a dynamic principle, but it's not an actual region of the brain, right? So so um, one, this is way too oversimplified, but um, like one example that I've heard that I think is somewhat helpful is like, I can say I unconsciously believe in child labor if we like look in the back of my clothes and like see a tag that indicates like child labor was involved in the making of the shirt, right? That's a, it's a little too simplified but um, it, it, it's not the case that my brain is actually in favor of child labor in that case. It, it's that my actual patterns are in favor of that, regardless of whatever conscious justification I use to So to the unconscious manifests, manifests itself in uh, embodied behavior. Would that be fair? Yeah, or is it even yeah. more than that? Um, yeah, well, in embodied behavior, in like symptoms, um, so... For example, uh, so, so a lot of times um, stress uh, can create certain um, actual physical. So the, the, there is there are whole classifications in psychoanalysis where the symptom returns in the body as like you might actually get like a sore or it might have like um, I don't know something some some other type of, of, of symptoms and rashes any kind of reaction. Yeah, like, like that? that's something we find. Like people, some people actually do like get actual rashes for example, when, when stress is significant enough. Right. And so you might not realize, Oh, Hey, this relationship is not working until you see the rash. And then you're like, Oh, that, I mean, that's kind of like a return of the symptom in the body. Right now, now neurochemically, of course, like a different process is going on, right? Like your, your brain gets a certain amount of chemicals that triggers these other complex bodily reactions. Right. Um, but unless we want to plug everyone into a machine that regulates all your chemicals, maybe there's a chance that talking through these types of things is a way to relieve the symptom, right? And explore so the like connections. The, the psychosomatic aspects of things, which a lot of people in religious circles totally poo on that. They go, oh, psychosomatic. Yeah, you just pray that away. Or uh -huh. It's not really a thing. It's like, I would say even like as little as my eye will twitch if mm -hmm. I am about to move. Why is my eye twitch? It's this weird little thing. I'm about to move. I'm just moving. Why is it twitching? But these things happen all the time, don't they? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, so, but for you with the, uh, you're, you're more concerned about, so, not so much the psychosomatic aspects of it, although that does manifest in a way, because it's because you can't, like you said, you can't just su suppression is one thing, repression is another, which we'll get to. Um, 
but you're more interested in so how these things manifest in our beliefs and then how those beliefs are functional or non-functional. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so one way to think about it is uh, psychoanalysis often works in groups of the three things that appear at once. So, so one of them uh, would be the symptom, the anxiety, and uh, the inhibition, right? So if there's some sort of drive that's being inhibited, and you're not quite aware of it, the first sense you might get of that inhibition might be the symptom that returns in the body or in the quivering of the voice, the inability to look somebody in the eye, something as simple as that, right, might be the thing that tells you, actually, I'm feeling inhibited. Um, I'm being, you know, told what to do, told what to believe. There's there's some sort of stress um, that's being generated in the situation. So so that returns. But I'm actually not sure that I actually got to the question that you uh, you. Th- you, you had something more direct there or um, did that cover it? <laughs> we're we're going to get to this directly and indirectly, I'm sure. We're, okay, we're going to okay. have a, a few hours of talking here. So you, so you define psychoanalysis for us. And so how can you also, and it's kind of going back to some things you said in your introductory kind of uh, statement and you talked about theology. Mm-hmm. And I think when, when most of our listeners hear the word theology, they think of God mm-hmm. and the study of God or different doctrines or, but you're using it more in, in a more expansive way. Could you kind of yeah, yeah. touch um, on that? Yeah. Thanks for asking. That's actually, that's great. Um, so, uh, so first off, you know, we kind of think of like, um, it ego and superego are kind of like the, the the classic terms that that come out of psychoanalysis, right? See, now that you've said those, you got to define them too. Okay, so ego is um, if we're gonna put it too simply, but like this is this is pretty good. Uh, ego is the conscious me. It is the parts of me that are driven by biology, right? So like in basic instincts uh, and uh, that, that keep me going as an animal that lives and breathes and eats and does other things as well. All right, so, so there's the conscious me and then there's the animalistic part of me, right? And then humans have this kind of unique capacity for a superego. Superego is the part of you that is accumulated from culture. It's the part of you that judges. It's the part of you that like you would not talk to if it was an actual person, right? The superego is kind of an asshole. So the superego does two things in psychoanalysis. It judges you for enjoying and it also demands that you enjoy, right? So like, uh, I don't, I don't know, like if, if it's spring break and you're not doing any, anything interesting, then, you know, it's saying like, why are you so boring? You should be out there. Uh, but if you are out there and, uh, you know, can't you remember know, yesterday. Yeah, yeah. It's like, you know, it's like, why did you enjoy so much? Right? Like, so you can never please it. It's, it's the part of you that's always judging. Now that ego is formed partly through through errors and identifications all through life, right? So um, I see an object that becomes, um, I don't know, something that like, let's say a person I want to emulate. Okay, this person has qualities X, Y, Z. I'm going to emulate that. Um, and eventually I start to judge myself because I don't measure up to that. So that super ego is like something I can see externally, but also the ego can attach to objects like, um, uh, I don't know. So like someone you love, like, right, is, is an external object that your ego attaches to. I must have this person. I must, you know, must be with this person. Right. But then once you are with them, that person becomes in a sense a part of you. Right. Like, so, so like, I don't really care if my, if my wife is in the wrong or not. So if someone's mad at her, like I feel I like I'm against you. Right. <laughs> because like I, cause I've attached to her in such a way that if you insult her, like I, I feel it as an insult to, to me. Right. So like, so theology is, um, I, it's, it, you know, the etymology of the word is a, a you know, a word about God. Right. And, and that's the way that like people use it. Um, I just, I don't think it's that interesting. And a lot of literature in the last two centuries just doesn't think of theology that way. Theology is much more interesting to think of as a type of, um, psychological investment or the ego's investment into objects, right? So Marx talks about this, like the theological dimension of money or commodities, right? Um, You can get all the money in the world if you become a billionaire. You don't actually need more money. 
but what do you want? You still want like lower taxes and like better, better returns on investment, right? More money than you could ever spend. You're not using it to purchase pleasure anymore. You're using it to purchase the direct concepts that you have more money in your accounts now. Right. So, so like, so the money has this like theological dimension. That's that ego's investment into an object, which then becomes part of you. Right. So we do this with symbols too. Um, we, um, attach to a symbol and then that symbol becomes us, right? Like it's that classic, uh, yeah, like 20 different people have said something like this in various forms and fashions, but you know, God creates us in God's image and then we return the favor or, you know, well, we, you know, we create God in our image and then God returns the favor. Right. So like, so there, there's a sense in which these theological symbols become parts of us. And then when people insult some doctrine that, um, that like we particularly like, then we feel like it's an attack on us. It's almost like, so like the ego also invest in like another way I, to think about it is like a sports team. If I say like, what's your sports team that you like? The Spurs, baby. So I don't feel like that investment into like any sports team whatsoever, right? But if I say the Spurs suck, uh, you're going to get mad if and only if you do two things. One, you have to invest in the Spurs personally, right? Like your ego needs to have attached to that. And then you also need to experience me my approval is something you desire, right? Now, if you don't have both of those things at the same time, you don't feel a threat, right? But if you feel, now now we can give our attachment to other people away very carelessly, right? So it might just be that so any I've seen person, people online and they get upset with strangers who mess with the Spurs. I, I watch these public threads going, right, yeah. man, just because yeah. someone likes Golden State, all of a sudden it's like the Antichrist. But maybe the reason they care is because it's in a public forum, right? Yeah, that So makes it's sense. not an actual person, but it's, you know, I want to be seen well among this community of whatever. Yeah. Of Spurs in, of, fans of, of or people. Even like, NBA fans in that sense. Mm-hmm. So if it's somebody beyond the Spurs tribe, because, you know, we have, we have trolls everywhere, not just in political and theological threads. You guys probably don't ever follow sports threads online. No. It's just no, as never. vicious as it is watching under real Donald Trump on Twitter. It's pretty hilarious. That's Tad's next book. Basketball yeah, is unconscious. Uh, yeah, basketball. Yeah, some something about any, that. Any sport, the sports about, with the balls and the and the hoops and the know, things about why that. it matters. Why why we invest in things that aren't life and death, right? <laughs> um, yeah, but okay. So we so we understand how that works, right? Like both of those qualities need to be there. You need to identify with something, and you need to give the approval from somebody else, like your status of desire, right? Um, and if you don't have both of those in place, then you don't really feel anything. Like if you want to tell me, like, hey, the Spurs are bad, then I think like, okay, whatever. Like, even if I really value opinion, I just don't really care because I don't feel any sort of investment. Uh, it's a very different situation if you attack somebody that I love, right? Like regardless of whether or not you're right about it or not, right? Um, so we do that with, um, I, I mean, just the the most abstract doctrines that have nothing to do with like the way we live, right? Like, so so I deal with this like in classes a lot when I'm, when I'm dealing with... Um, students who like maybe like we're doing archaeology of like ancient hominid faith and like ritual behavior right and then like you know a student might tell me well like i think the the world is six thousand years old right um which one in three people in the u.s do right so like that's not it's not a very uncommon thing so um so i understand that in any class like it's it's going to be very abnormal if i don't have at least two or three students like in that category right um so like when that happens i know that like what's actually going on is like that idea is something they're personally invested in they care about my opinion enough that it feels like a bit of a threat, right? Um, and I also know that they don't actually care about that idea because it's important to their day-to-day life. It's not. It has nothing to do with like how I live my life every day, whether or not the Earth is like 4.5 billion or 6,000, right? Um, but what they're worried what, the, what they're worried about is that like if they lose that belief then it's, it's a guard against the next belief that they'll invest in, right? Which actually starts to get closer to home, right? Like, so if there's a 6,000, you're not that, okay, so now Genesis is wrong or my interpretation of Genesis. Um, so maybe the Bible's wrong. Maybe like there's no God, maybe there's no afterlife and life is meaningless and everything's awful. And like, I just lost purpose in the last minute, right? So, so I understand that that's kind of like how the process works, right? So we, we have these whole investment structures and then we guard beliefs with other beliefs. And anytime some someone feels angst about a belief that you are in any way questioning or criticizing, it is because
because they have that personal investment or because they have invested themselves in a tribe that invest in that symbol, right? So it's either the personal meaning aspect or like the tribal cohesion that I want to be part of, right? And you only feel angst at the critique of religion if it feels like it's threatening one of those two wings of the 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 big like sphere of symbolism that religion constitutes right yeah, so i'm curious for you did you did you end up losing not just online facebook friends which is obvious i think we all lose those after a while mm-hmm. but did you lo- did you lose like friends from from ministry like that you were colleagues of who are i mean not not just the ones i mean I, there was the guy that let you go but oh, the yeah. people that you were dearly close to oh yeah most of them actually yeah i mean at this point like i still have like a few pretty good friends from that world um for sure but um, I mean, it's still, it's still kind of ongoing at this point, especially like with this kind of recent like Trumpist era when like a lot of my friends are, are very involved in, in Republican politics and everything. So, so I've kind of like lost a new wave recently. Um, but actually, I mean, I, I think, but it's also interesting to kind of watch friends who kind of like ditched forever ago kind of come back recently too and kind of say like, Oh yeah, like I'm, I, I used to think that you were crazy, but like now I'm kind of like thinking like maybe you're kind of onto something. Like like you're seven the, you're years the safe ago, guy right? Now. Yeah, like in a sense. So I, I think I performed that role for some some people as well, um, which I think is great. Like that's you know it's like whatever. <laughs> I mean I, I I'm just here to 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 be a resource and to teach as I can, and and that's great if if people make certain connections and want to reconnect. But no, I still I still lose people. I still have people who will pop up from like my past on like social media that I haven't talked to in years and they'll just like pop in. I, I, you know, literally forgot this person existed and they'll just kind of jump in to say like, Hey, just to let you know, I'm really disappointed in how much of an asshole you are now. And like, I'm sorry that you're so mad at God or, you know, like, like, you know how that works, right? Like people like that very, um, and that's, that's kind of like a very common, like that's that Southern bless your hearts. Like, I'm so sorry. Like, I feel, I feel so bad for you. Like, you know, so so I'm so sorry. Do you get this often where, where people see who you are now and they know a little bit of your background and they think it happened strictly like you're mad at God because you got fired, like you've been wounded and yeah, you just like, need to reconcile. That, that or various other like things, you know, there's always something that like people, like if they know you well enough, they can, they, they, and that's, I mean, it's part of being human, right? Literally, no matter how good or bad our lives are, there's something in all of us that if someone wants to criticize and say like, oh, you're just like messed up because of this thing, like all of us have multiple options that people who know us can go to. Right. So like, that's, that's a very easy thing. So, um, so I don't know. I don't, I mean, if people get too aggressive, I'll just like block and never talk to again or whatever. It's not a big deal, but, um, but yeah, but it is interesting. Cause like, um, it will again, and it's that interesting thing about psychoanalysis is that people like retroject the story where they're acting out of love. Right. But actually it's an aggressiveness. It's like a sense of like, I need to reify and entrench my world and, like choose to believe that like I'm doing something important by attacking somebody else for like, and, you know, trying to tear them down as much as I can. Right. So, um, that seems to be, uh, just a, I, I don't think that there's anything endemic to a certain, theological or political perspective in that either. I think that's just very human behavior. So At least this makes us breathe and laugh a little bit too, as opposed to getting so uptight when, oh, somebody defriended me or I got blocked and I'm like, you know what, this is, this is helpful for people. Oh, you have to. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> now you, you have to, you have to kind of laugh about as it. As Taylor Swift would say, shake it off. Well, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like in, in a great political theorist, she is in that sense, a great theologian. Right. But I mean, like that's, that's what you kind of realize when you have these kinds of divisions over ideas um it's it it's uh in a sense it's never personal it's always just narcissism right it's it's never about you it's it's, it's a, there's like a, you know it's a it's a it's a way to to reify and entrench what i want to the narrative i want to tell about myself right so how does this play out in the ego and the unconscious and all of that like you you have these interactions with people you know you're responding to the way the world has changed mm-hmm. and, or maybe you yourself are healing from some wounds. Like, Oh yeah. yeah. What, what's, what all is going on in there? Because like just on the surface and I, I have to admit up front, I'm probably the least educated tad delay person on the table. <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It's um, okay. I that's just okay. Pretend that's I okay. <laughs> uh, all right. Like, like how does this um, much better probably yeah. <laughs> how do you process like what's going on in here it sounds very much like there is no free will in this <laughs> that like it's all your brain like 
yeah. making things happen. And I'm not real comfortable with that idea, but Such I don't know enough to interpret it. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, well, I mean, let's uh, maybe we can take like the free will thing and kind of see where it goes from that. So I don't know if I'll be able to answer exactly, but like, feel free to jump in yeah. if I've, I'm like kind of dancing around. I'm, I'm not meaning to, but, no, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, like, so I, um, well, yeah, we do this in my, uh, so like one of the ideas in that I have to end up teaching in my college classes, for example, is like, you know, in, in an ethics class covering like a character like John Stuart Mill that says like human beings basically seek, seek happiness and we act out of kind of a free rational will like to choose the best among options. Right. Um, and I actually do think that humans act in their uh, interest of pleasure, but I'm not sure that that's the same as happiness, right? So I, I, I'm, in, I'm not like a strict determinist. Like it may be the case that everything is reducible to psychology, which is reducible to biology, which is chemistry, which is physics, which is mathematics, and we can eventually create an algorithm that just predicts, right? Um, the closest we can get right now is using algorithms to predict big group behavior and general statistical averages, right? So, so that right there kills absolute free well, the very fact that there is a field of sociology and that we can calculate this. So like, so there's not absolute for it. Well, right. But I'm also not convinced that there's absolute determinism. That seems like, I don't, it's just, even if there was, it doesn't seem like a helpful idea to me. It just doesn't like, I don't like, even if that's like mathematically or, you know, physically true, it just doesn't seem like, like what's the, the functional use of that idea. Um, so I, but I do think that, uh, the ego is kind of always crafting, ideas out of error, out of mistakes, learning things, learning to adjust its modulation, its, its way of viewing the world. But I do think that we are, if not happiness seeking out of a free rational will, we are at least pleasure seeking. And then our ego has to come along to kind of retroactively justify why we do the things that we do, why we, why we live a certain way. Um, and that is not just, it's not just our ego, right? It's like our whole apparatus of experience that we're that we're drawing from the whole repertoire of experience like in, an, in a, another way I say it is like um one of the things that psychoanalysis will kind of say is that every the reason that people go to therapy in the first place really comes down to um and I say this right in the first couple pages of God is unconscious but like um the actually let me just let me just read this and like see where this goes the underside of a signifier's power to tell us who we are contains an ever-present, if only latent, power to construct the most unforgivable narratives. And so in our 20s or 30s, we enter psychotherapy to begin to discern what happened to us in our earlier years. We imagine we began the process for any number of reasons, but really these reasons are all derivative of two, and ultimately only two reasons that we seek help. First, we feel we'll never we feel separated by a constitutive and fundamental lack and suspect we will never be loved or accepted as or known as fully as we wish. Secondly, our alienation ensures that we will never escape our history. The best and the worst experiences mold us in ways beyond our control, and it's profoundly disturbing to realize that we are conditioned by elements that have been thrust upon us. We are irrevocably the symptom of the experiences shaping our desire, and we cannot regress the, to a, some, non, some neutral state of non-conditioned naivety. Our alienation begins the moment we learn as infants that there are rules of the house that we are powerless to protest. This trace inscription evolves into an elaborate latticework of self-imposed injunctions that shape our identities. It's like the old authoritarian motto, the more you profess your innocence, the more you deserve to be shot. Uh, the more we obediently submit to our superego crafted precariously from our parents and friends, our political economies and our books, our demons and our gods, the more we are under its judgment, right? And so like my, my idea is that like people, people end enter psychotherapy because you have this, uh, these like, like this experience of like the rules of the house, right? Like I have to do certain things. I have to desire certain things. I have to behave certain ways, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, and I don't like who I have to be. I don't like who I've become. Right. And secondly, um, there's this, this idea of like, okay, not only are there like rules that we're powerless to protest, but we're separated in some sense from like this, like sort of pure maternal affection that we can never get in like a relationship either, right? Like where somebody completely 100% knows me, loves me, accepts every little thing about me, no matter what, where I never even have to second guess if it's okay to be honest, right? So like we never completely get, well, you can get really, really close, but like we never get 
that full acceptance, right? So, so we have this sense of like being detached in a some sense, but also being conditioned by elements that have been thrust upon us, right? So like the worst experience in my life will always be with me. The best experiences in my life will hopefully always be with me, like unless I kind of like repress them and only focus on the worst, right? So when I do something and I think that I'm reacting purely out of free will, um, that's, it's a a naive in a sense because like actually what I'm doing is I'm reacting to the sum total of experiences that have happened in the past that are triggering certain memories in this new interaction, right? Um, And so I might get mad at somebody because they say something that reminds me exactly of what somebody else who was much more directly malevolent said to me as well. Right. So, but I don't know if that like kind of gets to, to what you're saying, but like, I mean, I am, I guess like at the end of the day, I'm, I'm definitely not a hundred percent on board with free will, but I, I don't find it helpful to be uh, completely on the determinist side as well. So, um, I don't know. Poke this holes opens in up that. So yeah, many like, questions. Like, yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I guess the next one is when you're talking about this deconstruction that happens. And if we're lucky, like Dan, it happens in our twenties and some of us, it doesn't happen till our mid thirties. Um, so what's going on in, in all of that stuff, what's going on in the relationship between the ego, the id and the super ego, when your world falls apart, when you deconstruct from the church and maybe it happens quite quickly, like what, how is it, categorizing and like figuring out how to move forward because everything you thought you knew Mm -hmm. is invalid essential in some ways. Yeah. Well, innocent, but like when people do that, there's, there's a process before that where people know that ideas don't work and you kind of kept it down. You, I I think almost always, I don't know if that's like a universal rule, but usually my experience is that people kind of know ideas don't work for a while and then finally give in. So the, the way that um, Freud wrote a really super short book that you can read in one setting called The Future of an Illusion that kind of dis- draws this distinction between ideas that are delusions and ideas that are illusions, right? So in his way of thinking, a delusion is objectively false and illusion is something that we wish to be true, okay? So people see a mirage in the desert of water, it's a delusion because it's not actually there. It's an illusion because you want to see water. Like we don't go into a desert and see illusion, like mirages of fire, for example. Right. right? Um, so, so religious beliefs can be both or they can be like, they can be true, but like on, on the, the psychoanalytic wager is that something that we invest in, like a religious belief is always has some sort of wish attached to it. Okay. So people leave beliefs, not when they realize they're delusional, people actually maintain beliefs for years when they mm-hmm. realize they're delusional, they maintain them because they wish they'd be, be true. Right. And so into people leave when they no longer feel the need for a certain idea to be true. Um, I do that. That's the best way I can make sense of it. Um, because I feel like whenever I, um, I, I feel like mounting, I, I mean, this is kind of why I'm very skeptical about like arguing people out of ideas, right? Because people will leave ideas that don't work when they're ready. Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't ever see people get argued out of positions, right? Like argument can actually entrench it and keep you there longer. Um, it's when people have some sort of that, I mean, that's why people change religious beliefs at certain points in their lives, right? The people, people don't like go back and forth like in their twenties and then again, in their early thirties and then like a few years later and then like in their forties and then in their fifties, like people don't like radically go back and forth. Like it right. happens at a few particular points in life. It's often during, um, the death of a friend or a, uh, like a divorce or the birth of a child or so like there, there are these like key moments that kind of change your investment in certain things or like, you know, the stress of college. And then also like super horrible things can like happen to you that make you like radically rethink like what your investment in is into a certain idea. Um, that's the way I think of it is like people actually go through this process of deconstruction, but, um, I don't, you guys have been around like this, this like kind of conversation for a while. You've seen seen like the way that people kind of say like I've really been thinking about this for like and then I'll say like a few years mm-hmm. um and you can kind of say like okay like I've heard the story before and I know exactly where you're going to end up eventually if you're asking these particular questions like I know you will eventually get to this point I just can't tell you how long it's going to take right. you to get there yep. right because you kind of know basically this is a process that goes in one direction and one direction only 
Um, but it's kind of, it's different for every person when they're going to lose the investment that causes them to stop wishing this idea to be true. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's the way I think of it. And I think that that idea of like, um, the, the wish is, is very helpful. So like, you know, Freud uses the example of like, um, what, what do we do with like the idea that like when Columbus thinks that he has found a, a route to the East Indies, right? Well, that's, that's delusion and illusion, right? He wished it to be true, but it's also objectively false. And then he kind of says, what do we do with the idea? The Messiah will come, right? He's talking like from his Jewish context, not his Christian context, right? Um, but that's, uh, that's definitely an illusion, right? Like it's based on a wish, but an indefinitely postponed event can't be falsified, right? You can say right. like, you can say like, I think that that's going to be delusional, but like, unless you can see into the future, you can't call that delusion. Right. So, so I always use that distinction with my students because it's, it's helpful to break down. What are the things that we can say are true and false now here today? And what are the things that we can say are maybe not on the register of the true and the false, um, but are on the register of the wish and the lack of the wish, right? Um, and in a sense, like the true and false is the much more dangerous thing for religion, right? So like I have this, right. you know, quote for, from Lacan, you know, that, that Christianity is the true religion as it claims is not an excessive claim. It's the worst that can be said about it because once you enter the register of the true, you can no longer exit it, right? Like so right. once you claim to be true then you're in trouble because like that only goes one of two ways, right? So is that kind of what happens to people when they they might start to wake up or start to question and push on that that delusion and the wish as well. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of retrench and they they just stay in the in this case in the faith that they are comfortable with and they know. And even as those things kind of burble up and percolate, they just like push them down because I know these are true. And so I'm just going to hold on to them. Um, is that kind of what he's talking about there? Yeah. Like in a, in a sense, but I mean, in that case, somebody doesn't like wish those things to no longer be right. true. Right. They, they're um, still holding and, I, and I don't think that that makes them like in, in a, in a and I want to be clear about this. Cause I don't actually think that like, if any of us let go of those same things that that makes us any better. Cause, um, we're getting some sort of satisfaction out of not wishing those things to be true and like moving on into some sort of new territory. Right. Um, so, so we're all like, no still one's pleasure free seeking. of that. Right. Well, I mean, if you, if you're free of like pleasure seeking, then you just die. Right. Like, I mean, there, there, or you lose motion in life, right? Like you don't have a desire to do things. Right. So, so like it, it's good to have that drive for desire, um, or for the drive for pleasure. Right. Um, it's just that some people can start to question things, kind of know that they don't work right. Like at the, at the level of some kind of crazy religious belief or whatever, but still stay in that because like, what are they getting? Well, they're getting a community. They're getting the familiarity of the repetition of the, of the known, um, they're getting like the symbol that gives them some sort of security. Uh, you get the, the ratification of the big other and, you know, so on and so forth. So that's a great place to be if you can uh, stay there. Right. Like my, my fear, though, is that like people throw their whole lives away on on things that are just illusions. Right. And so, and so that's always kind of my concern is that like I actually do think people need to be rescued from from certain illusions. I don't think they're all created equal or like everybody has a point and both sides are right or whatever. So they always want to resist that logic. So, so I've seen a trend in American Christianity and I don't know if I can confidently say that it's only among evangelicalism or post evangelicals and without name dropping, there's people that you probably know that um, put an emphasis not so much on belief, but on doubt Mm -hmm. and confronting doubt. But I feel like, you know, based on the conversation so far, doubt can be a clever way of not going into that um, truth realm that Lacan talks about, Mm -hmm. because like you said, that's where you're in trouble. So doubt can function as the thing that's keeping the distance from you actually confronting the thing, right? Because then it could fall apart. But as long as there's doubt and you don't have, you don't have to make a choice about the belief, right? So, you know, somebody might ask me, and this is, I'm being completely truthful. Somebody might ask me, so what do you think about the Trinity? And I can say, you know, I doubt the Trinity. Like, well, what do you think about it? And I could say, nah, I'm not so sure, but I'm keeping that distance because then if I have that doubt in place, I don't go down the slippery slope. 
I, I there there definitely is a truth to like thinking of of doubt as something that you can sort of always be in a stage of doubt about like the same sets of, of ideas. Um, that can be that can be probably like pretty problematic, right? Um, at some point, you you should like traverse the fantasy, as as we would say in psychoanalysis, right? Like you should you like you don't need the but I mean. In another sense, like, I don't know, you know, different people are right for different audiences. And, you know, also like someone who encounters my work, like if they're still just reading me and thinking I'm the cutting edge in five years, then I would feel that like I have failed you. Right. You know, like so. So like different. We're getting close. God is unconscious has been out for what, two years, three years. Yeah. Oh, yeah. we got two so, years. Yeah. Left two then. years left to, to get off. This so get train, the book but, now. <laughs> yeah. But, but, well, but, but like but also that's why I'm kind of like I, I want my next projects to kind of go in different directions like I want to explore different topics like I don't want to just talk about like the same stuff for for years and years on end um and for me like the best I can do is because and I do have like people that sometimes will tell me like I, I read your work and it allowed me to like just, like keep believing right like and they often mean like like the same thing right and, and I always feel sad about that right you like just I'm, die inside. I'm like that's <laughs> that's great that you felt good but like that's that's not what I wrote I actually just wrote it because like I needed to write this book to process some stuff on my end right um but like if if someone takes away that they should keep believing the same stuff that they always did like I don't know what the point of of reading a book is uh, I don't know if that you know so um so so like I I would I would be happy. I mean, I would hope that people like when they move beyond me, for example, and move on to like my influences, which I think is great. Like if I, I say it right in the front of God is unconscious. Like if all I do is convince you to read Lacan, like I figure like that's a success, right? The gateway um, drug. Yeah. Yeah. So like if people move beyond me and move on to something else, I think that's actually fantastic. Like that, that's, that's really great that I was, you know, like, you know, you know, be nice to me when you move on or whatever. But you know, at the end of the day, like that, that's great. Like if, if you're moving on to something else, but yeah, like the problem would be kind of perpetually thinking like if we just have these same conversations about psychoanalysis all day, um, for, for years and years and years on end and like trying to come up with increasingly abstruse ways to talk about the same basic ideas, then like somehow we're making progress. And that's a big problem, not just in like psychoanalysis and theology, but also in deconstruction language and like postmodern theory in general. Right. Um, uh, even process thought, like just coming up with more, Wait, I know, no, 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 no. I'm but offended. Like, I, I, I'm just, I'm not a fan, but like, whatever. Um, I'm just but, but it is, it, it's smarter than most of the stuff out there. I'll, I'll give you that. Right. Um, so, but like when, when we come up like with more and more opaque ways to kind of talk about the same ideas, but never comp like finally land and say like, by the way, what we mean by all this is that this idea doesn't work and it's never works. Right. And we need to find like better ways that may require us to abandon like very fundamental concepts like Trinity, like, which like is very weird that that's something we're so attached to. Right. Um, but it's like, funny to me. I brought that one up specifically because when you talked about beliefs that have little to no, you know, influence on somebody's life apart from the earth being 6,000 years old is mm -hmm. the Trinity. Like what if it was two? What if it was oh. one? What if it was five? I Hold know. On. You can for, have relationship with more people, than three. I'm sorry. <laughs> I you, understand what you're you saying. You can talk about perichoresis. You can talk about dancing. And you we can did talk. We about did bring that up. With three the people. St. Patty's <laughs> Celtic Christianity podcast. Actually, yeah. see, it's functional in a monastic setting. The fact that I got that reaction out of you, I know that you care about that thing, I and do. you also regard me in some kind of. A <laughs> so speaking of the Trinity, <laughs> me Dan, trying to be Tad, <laughs> I suck at this. Dan, Dan oh Dan. I, I, so we are. Uh, almost an hour in and we're going to actually define the cynic and the oh, fool. Yeah. yeah. So let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get just, to the <laughs> No, yeah. this is going to be a multi-part <laughs> podcast. So let's do the cynic first or the fool, whichever one you want to start with. Okay. So, um, important like context here. Um, I was writing this book, uh, well, I was doing kind of research for it. sort of like finished it co-evolve with my dissertation, which was on psychoanalyzing populism and like right wing, like proto-fascist movements in connection with evangelical Christianity. And I defended that six weeks before the election thinking like none of this will matter in six weeks. So that's, that's what I've been interested in. I have this like habit of like talking about things like a little early. So like everyone's kind of like, can you just like write your next book on how like 
communism wins or something. The like prophet, a, like the, the eschaton comes and we're all fine after this or something. Um, no, 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 but like not prophecy, but like, I mean, really like these, there's lots of trends going on in society that we've had a lot of evidence for a long time. And I, I by no means saw like a lot of what's happened in the last year and a half, like coming. I, I did not think it would happen. Um, so I, I, but I was just kind of saying like, these trends are there. No, they'll probably get beat down, but like, but we have some concerning sort of like white nationalist, uh, populist trends going on. But, um, but also, uh, yeah, like, so right after I finished God is Unconscious, a lot of people told me it was kind of too difficult and I wanted to kind of retry and put some of the same themes in, in more accessible language. Um, and I kept coming up with all these examples that didn't seem to have much to do with anything in society at the time back in spring of 2015. I was talking about like fake news stories in social media bubbles and like theories of populism when like America hadn't had a populist movement in decades. And, um, I was talking about like the political uses of conspiracy theories and like, who cares? Cause the moment you start talking about conspiracy theories, even negatively, people kind of think like, why does this matter? Right. So I was doing all this. And then I was, um, I sort of thought, uh, Lacan has this, this theme of the knave and the fool. And so I, I thought maybe I could word this, um, this idea around like the question of when someone lies to me, um, says something that's clearly untrue, I have an immediate reaction that I, an interpretive decision that I need to make. Is this person somebody who genuinely believes in sort of a foolish way what they're saying? Um, or is this person the cynic, the nihilist, the knave, the sort of machiavelli, some, someone who's manipulating and using words as means to an end, right? And the word cynic is, um, it has like, you know, two meanings in English, one of which is like this idea of like the skeptic or like nobody has true value use, you know, like I'm skeptical of all you. So that's, that's one. And there's like sort of a heroic element of cynicism in that, but like, that's not what I'm interested in this book. I'm, I'm using the word cynic in the sense that we call a politician cynical when they say like, uh, this guy voted for this and it's so cynical, usually saying like he's working for whatever lobby is, is paying like funding a super PAC or whatever. Right. Um, well, yeah, yeah. In that case, yeah, yeah. So, um, so, I, so when we call a politician cynical, we're not saying like they're heroically, thoughtfully skeptical of the world around them. We're saying like, no, you're a person who does not care who you hurt. Uh, you are using your words as means to an end. You are using people, human beings, as means to an end, um, and that is that is cynical, right? So, so I mean cynical in that way. So, yeah. So I worded this whole like book kind of around like. To me, this is one way to talk about psychoanalysis is what are we doing with our words? Um, when someone lies to me, do they foolishly believe the words coming out of their mouth or are they cynically manipulating, right? Um, and then, uh, yeah, just so, I mean, I mentioned it the other night, but just one day after I finished the rough draft of this, uh, you know, some guy descends from his tower in New York and declares his campaign for president. And like ever since, that's been the question, like that's been the subtext of every political article, right? Like is like, to what extent does this guy believe the things that he's saying or is he trying to manipulate? Is this like a trial balloon for a coup? you know, is he an idiot or is he a genius? Like, is he, you know, kind of like a blundering clown or is he an authoritarian? Like there's, there's kind of this, yeah, yeah. So like, well, and that, and that makes the, the problem like all the worse, right? Like aspects of like wounded narcissism, spiritual emptiness, pointless aggression, that makes it even harder to interpret what's going on. Right. So, um, so, and I'm actually very, I'm so happy. I wrote most of this before any of that because my interpretations would have all been wrong. Like I just assumed nobody could be this incompetent at the beginning, right? Like, he has to know what he's doing. He's not trying to win if you start off by, like, labeling, like, a whole, like, ethnic group as, like, criminals, right? Like, you're not actually trying, right? But, like, kind of, like, as we went along, it's like, okay, like, open to different interpretations now, right? So, so yeah, so this book is kind of, like, feels like it, like, I wrote it in 2015, but it feels like now, um, and I'm so grateful that I was pretty much done with it by the time that, that that was all done, so, or that all kind of started, like, kind of, like, the last year of campaign season and everything, so, um, yeah, but, like, um, it, the, the whole idea comes from this idea I don't think I got into this the other night but Lacan at one point um, and this is back in like 1967 during a series of left-wing protests in Paris but um, he kind of spells out okay so the left-wing intellectual or leader is expected to play the part of like this fool not in the sense of stupid but like in direct honest belief you know when a left-winger for example says like rights for immigrants, like access to healthcare. Nobody said, like you can say, I don't agree with the leftists, but nobody says, 
um, well, maybe in conspiratorial world, but in broader culture, nobody says what veiled concealed interest is he serving by trying to get people access to healthcare, right? Like there's, there's not a whole lot of that. Like there's a sense of kind of direct childlike belief that the world can and will get better. Right. And then Lacan says like, on the other hand, like the right wing intellectual is expected to play this part of the knave, like where you ask them, you know, he says at one point, like, and I, I adopt this in in the book for an example, but he says, you know, if you, for example, were to, you know, pull up a chair next to the, you know, the, the right wing intellectual at the hotel bar after he's gotten done with the speeches for the day. And you say like, do you really believe all that? Like that immigrants are the problem for like our national, like redistributions of wealth and wealth inequality and stuff. Like, do you really think the immigrants are the problem? You know, what does the intellectual say? Don't insult my intelligence. Like, like, like I'm not an idiot. Like, of course I know how like the world works. I'm not, I'm not an idiot. Like I'm just doing what I'm paid to do. Right. Um, and and that's like Fox news, right? Like most of the people on there are not idiots, right? Like most of them have degrees, they've traveled, they live in big cities, they've like been all over the world, like, like doing what they paid to do. Right. And so this is, and this is like, what's annoying with like liberals, right. Is like, you're always expected to kind of play the the accusation of like hypocrisy or whatever. Well, like maybe somebody's just doing exactly what they're paid to do. And you're kind of like the idiot for like falling for the trap that like we use language directly in the first place. Right. Um, sort of kind of in the same way that I like very early on thought that like a pastor's role was to report the truth. However, I found it and like speak honestly and truth to power and et cetera, et cetera. Right. Um, so yeah, so I, I say all that, like knowing full well, like of course that like not everyone is, is on board with that, but I hope that's at least helpful to kind of, uh, suss out the, the ideas that I'm, that I'm playing with here is that, is that we use words in different ways, different whole political perspectives, use words in different ways. And sometimes if you have a group of fools, they want a leader to lie to them. And if you have a group of skeptics, they want a leader to kind of on like just directly believe for them, for example, right? Like you, so you find this in like more liberal groups of Christians, for example, that really just want like a pastor to kind of pretend to believe like whatever they're supposed to believe for ages and ages, right? So you, so you get like, you get this in like multiple different valences and, and, and different, different vectors that that works in. I was going to say, and that's where I was trying to get to with, with talking about how doubt can kind of separate you. Right. And then that gap can be filled in by the, the pastor or whatever, right. You go Mm -hmm. to church on Sunday and that gap, that doubt gap is filled because somebody's believing on your behalf. But I wanted to mention really quick that just, just today I saw, uh, I'm not quoting Mitt Romney directly, but I thought it was very interesting that he, he said that his stance on immigration is harder than Trump's. And I think that's, that's very funny to me because he's somebody who's been pretty much very critical of, of Donald Trump until of course he's running for Senate. Mm-hmm. And now he's trying to say that he's, you know, with the DACA recipients that they shouldn't be here legally at all. Right. And this is some, somewhere where Donald Trump has actually made potentially changed his mind or been pushed whatever language we want to use. Mm-hmm. But he had one view before he has a different view now. And Mitt Romney was saying, I'd be harder on it. And, and it's interesting because it goes back to the um, us seeing politicians as, hey, that's, that's hypocritical. Mm-hmm. I thought you said that Donald Trump was a complete, you know, I don't know, a, a fake, a phony. Yeah, well, no, I, I had the same thought like this morning. I mean, because I, I think through this theme all the time. And there is that, like, I forget who said it, but there's some some like very kind of dismissive quote that says like anytime uh, you can attribute either foolishness or malice, like just assume foolishness. Like uh, usually that like suffices, right? And that's probably generally true, but um, but it's ve- we're very bad at kind of figuring out motives. So um, we was a Supreme Court justice that just had an op-ed on guns today. That was it... Uh, Stevens? Uh, was he the one that he recently... It was a, a, an associate justice on the Supreme Court who wrote an op-ed today, um, and he called for uh, repealing the Second Amendment, right? And he says, you know, this amendment, and sort of his premise is like, this amendment was written at a time when we needed militias to fight back against uh, a standing national army. And it's like, there's... 
I have a very hard time thinking that a Supreme Court justice could think that that's what this because like anybody who's ever done reading on it like understands okay the Second Amendment was not about a militia to fight a standing army it was not about a militia to fight a foreign army it was about slave patrols and like like suppressing native peoples right like that's literally the whole purpose of it is to have a standing army so like in the absence of a police force you can have an army that goes out and captures black people or slaughters Native Americans, right? I mean, so so like we kind of know this. Maybe not most of Americans know this, but a Supreme Court justice definitely knows that, especially a Supreme Court justice who was like around at the like time of, I think he was on the bench at the time of Heller, the Heller decision in 2008 that like gave the universal like right to, to um, arms or whatever. But to me, that's an example of like, okay, what's he doing? Is this a tactical decision to try to endear him to most of Americans? Because that can kind of understand um is he flat out lying does he just not know basic history um in a way that you would expect this it's like it's very kind of unclear like where 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 is that motive there like what's he trying to do because there's there's ways to deceive that actually could be quite justified um and uh depending on kind of like what your what your ultimate goal is right and we kind of understand that all the time like nobody goes into a church and expects the pastor to just blast out everything that they've thought in the last week right like we kind of we expect some amount of deception right um so and i think that's that's just kind of human nature but like it all comes down to this inability to kind of discern the motives of another that especially others that we don't know so yeah um, so then you would say like these are the two caricatures on the extreme end but yet we're all a mix of all that the oh yeah cynic and yeah. fool yeah, absolutely. And and I want a world where we can just be like foolish, like egotistical, like self-interested, like children. People. No, like in a sense like I don't I don't want to have to think through like someone else's motives like how are you trying to like fuck with us, right? Like I I just I I would much rather live in a world where like basic needs are kind of taken care of by like a well-regulated government apparatus and then I can be free to like do whatever job I want and like find fulfillment in my life the way that I that I want, right? Like and I don't have to kind of think like how are you trying to like twist the truth and like manipulate like I, th- I think that that's actually like a better world like where we can have more honesty but we don't live in that world we live in a world where um we are all kind of like fools who end up paying someone to lie to us so um and we do that in lots of different like we do that in our jobs in our face like in relationships right so nobody's really to blame here whether it's the congregants of fools or the pastor on stage who was at Charlottesville and cynic. I mean, really they're, they're both, <laughs> no, no one's to blame. Um, well, I think we're all to blame, right? Yeah, I think yes, we're but all, if we're, but awful, that's what I'm saying. Right? If we're all to blame and you keep, but, you, but we always want the scapegoat. We want the, the guy on stage who's like, he's saying what they want them to hear, but he's really just manipulating them. They want him to manipulate them. It's, it's a weird. <laughs> yeah. Well, in a sense. Yeah. And, and that's kind of like where I, I, I have this kind of axiom at the beginning of the cynic and the fool where I say, um, my, my perspective is that not that we are, subjects who desire to know but we are subjects who desire occasionally that desire attaches to knowledge to try to figure out like what's going on around this but actually human beings aren't subjects who just desire knowledge like knowledge is great if it gives us some other kind of pleasure or whatever but um but uh yeah we're just we're we're bad at doing that and so a lot of times it's easier just to kind of live in a pattern of repetition if it's familiar even if that repetition is is killing what the thing that we love this religion, this God, this uh, I, tribal identity, i.e. American evangelicalism, for instance. Yes, but, well, but it won't die for like another few generations, which is long past all the people who are killing it off. So like, what do they care? They, that same crowd does not care if humankind goes extinct in a couple centuries. So like, why should they care about like whether or not they're debasing their faith, right? Uh, so we're like on the, we're on like the edge of like a, like a mass extinction, like civilization crippling event, right? With climate change. Um, and we don't seem to care about that. So like, why in the world should we care about like the integrity of of, of like a, a faith, you know, if, if you're in that crowd as well. So that might be hostile. That might be the beer talking actually, but actually I think I really believe that because that's, that's what I'm writing on my new project right now. So... <laughs>